Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It was Monday, June 30, 1997, and the Brisbane Broncos were riding high. On top of the Super League table and coming off three home world club challenge wins against their hapless English opponents, it was a confident outfit who arrived at Shark Park to take on Cronulla. 80 minutes later, however, they had been floored, crushed 32-4 after an impressive Sharks performance, and the domestic Super League competition roared to life with a new contender for the title that many thought already in the hands of the Broncos. This is part four of the Telstra Cup, the 34th chapter in the Rugby League Digest in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? Mate, wonderful. How are you? I'm good. We're uh, getting very close to the end of the 1997 domestic Super League competition. We've certainly got a lot more to talk about over the season, but it's been nice to see this season play out. <laughs> it's been the absolute marathon of all marathons, going back to our 1988 four-parter. <laughs> yeah. Yep, so we've taken it an extra step this time because this chapter is going to be a five-parter. Part five will be the actual Super League Grand Final. So for this episode, we're going to be looking at those two Grand Finalists, the Sharks and the Broncos. You don't need to pressure me into watching that, man. I watch it daily, the greatest game of all time. (laughs) So let's start with the Sharks. And I'm going to set this up in a way that I know is going to enrage Sharks fans who are probably already a bit enraged about how little coverage they've got relative to some of the other clubs in our story. But well, I'm sure that individual person out there will get over it. <laughs> so, this was actually a line from a Steve Mascod column in 1996. For much of the time since 1967, when the Sharks joined the Premiership, the whole thing just seemed like a bad idea. <laughs> That's pretty stiff, Steve. It's pretty stiff, but I I guess the case for that, uh, which Mascord goes on to make and many others have before and since, is that it was a struggle almost from the start for the Sharks. So there were reports of them potentially, you know, being broke and in danger of leaving the league in the mid-70s, in 1976. In the early 80s, they were one of the three clubs viewed as being on the chopping block. And... The whole way through, and I guess it's perpetuated even to some extent to the current day, they seem perpetually trapped in these boom and bust cycles where they're riding high one season and then they're like broke again a couple of years later. And uh, it's been a real effort. So, you know, credit to them for being the survivors they've been for 50 plus years now. I don't remember too many boom periods, but um, (laughs) I'm sure there was some. But I've got a theory on them. I think without the cool name sharks and without the nice colors and a few like you know et michael speechley types i reckon they would have been gone if they had like steelers jerseys and colors <laughs> yeah and, and, I, and, and I, th- I think the other thing they have to their advantage is their identity just works so well for their area and their fan base it, yeah it just all fits right Surf yeah bum I mean, possibly without puberty blues, they would have folded. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the period we're talking about in the mid-90s, they were very much back in that kind of bus cycle. They made a big play on a leagues club refurb where they, you know, put $600,000 worth of poker machines in to, you know, turn the Cronulla Leagues Club into the Taj Mahal of the Deep South. That hadn't really come to fruition. I think the timing was really bad. I haven't looked into the exact reason why, but spending six hundred grand on pokies at the very time that pokies are being allowed into pubs and you don't have the license to print money in a leagues club that you had a few years before, I'd say would have contributed something to it. I mean, how can you lose money in that insidious game? I mean, it's literally just barrels of cash and somehow rugby league people manage to stuff up pokies. Yeah. <laughs> so... 
Anyway, they kind of jumped ship to Super League because of those money problems. Like they viewed it as their only chance of surviving and surviving solo. So it was very prescient of them to go to Super League. And I think we've said it before, like they're one of the few clubs that there's no doubt that what they did was the right way to go and played a significant role in them still being here 25 years later. I always had a soft spot from the Gavin Miller days, really. I just thought they were a fun team, a fun second or third team to watch, and um, I always had a soft spot for them. But to me, they just fit Super League so perfectly. It's the ultimate uh, symbiotic relationship. It, yeah, it is, but it should be noted that they were by no means Super League's first, second, or even third choice. You know, it was Peter Gow actively campaigning for the Sharks. They were one of the few teams that actually like proactively courted Super League rather than the other way around. It was a case of Gao making the case for Cronulla and leaving them in the box seat when everything kicked off. I mean, yet again, your um, China advancing professional sports got a key team that's a small suburb or two small suburbs yeah. in the, in yeah. the Shire. Like, yeah. Yeah, ridiculous. But I think if they'd stayed with the ARL, that would have given the ARL the biggest shot in the arm because they just had that cool, fun team with Peachy and all that. Mm. And it just would have made the ARL look a whole lot less dour. I think there's something to that. They were a fun team. They were a really fun team and a really great cast of characters that we'll get into in a bit more depth soon. But Super League came at the right time for Cronulla on the field as well. After a pretty lean few years in the early 90s, they were full of promise. They'd started to improve in 95 and 96 they'd had this great base of juniors coming through at the right time. So when 97 came, they were primed and ready, and they definitely helped give credibility to Super League, which you know was lacking credibility in a few ways. Just another example of getting your juniors right, um, yeah. paying off. <laughs> so I just wanted to go back to Peter Gow briefly before we move on, because I think these days, if he's not remembered for being L's dad, it's the, you know, cutting up the St. George fans tie Barry Beef incident. And, I mean, that's that's a hilarious incident. So I, It's a bit cruel to tar in with that one brush, right? But it's the league incident that made me realise as a teen that rugby league men were off their heads, you know? Like, yeah. It really put league men on the map for me, that incident. <laughs> I mean, it's one of the great ones. But I think what it does for Peter Gow is to kind of dampen his legacy somewhat where he was a really shrewd guy. And as I said, I think he is a very big part of the reason why Sharks fans still have a team to this day. So if I was a Sharks fan, I'd be very thankful for what Peter Gow did in the mid nineties. And I think they are thankful for him. Yeah. I mean, he was by no means a universally loved figure in the Shire. In fact, in 1996, he just survived a leadership challenge with, I love this quote, uh, the word is Gao has lost the support of seven out of eight fellow directors. The eighth, Dane Sorison, is reportedly not that big a fan either. <laughs> How did he survive that then? <laughs> well, this is what I love. So it was a, a boardroom battle, but because he knew he didn't have the support of the board, what Peter Gow had to do was to win the hearts and minds of the rank and file. So he actually took it to the streets. You know, he was handing out flyers at train stations, door knocking, you know, cold calling residents of the Shire. And he ended up winning the election. There were four times the number of votes than what there would normally be for an election of this type. So just, uh, you know, sheer force of will and... Think about that. Uh, That's yeah. <laughs> amazing. Treating it like it's the, um, the 68 US presidential election. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. It just goes to show how much they love their power, these guys, right? Mm. Like, no matter how small and niche the rugby league league club power is, they love it. Yeah, but, I mean, unlike some of the other figures we've talked about in this series, with Gao, it seems it was power for a reason like he believed in the sharks and yeah he believed in their future so you can definitely bag him out all you want and have a laugh but i think uh, it's great but it's yeah. funny yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> i think in that byzantine world of uh lee's club politics you got these graham richardson types that are like the masters of the machiavellian backdoor deals then you got the men of the people guys you got to get the ones that can do both an arco mm. and then you got your perfect league man but you kind of one or the other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
But again, I don't want to spend too much of this episode talking about administrators because it does essentially come down to the squad and the team they built. And I think I'd mentioned in a previous episode that for me, this is the most likable Sharks team in their history. They were just pretty much head to tail a likable bunch. And I think for me, it all starts with the coach who we've spoken about our admiration for him in the past, but John Lang, just a a rugby league gentleman. Yeah. You don't get many universally beloved figures in sport, and he's one of them. Yeah, and just a infectious enthusiasm for the game. Someone who never seemed like jaded or tired of the game. Like he just absolutely loved the game and brought that to each club he went to. And we've said this before uh, ad nauseum, but the son, Martin, everyone just remembers him being a straight running psycho and appearing to be a meathead. The guy's as brainy as they come off the field. I know. I'm loving his contribution to, you know, NRL Twitter and all the other places he pops up. Back in the 90s, I was guilty as anyone of just thinking he was just a big dumb idiot just because (laughs) of his playing style. But like, yeah, love Martin Lane. He probably just got out the physics table and thought, you know, straight line running is the most efficient use of my time. And, you know, he worked it all out scientifically. Uh, But you're right about John Lang being universally loved. The admiration for him cut across state borders with Lang saying that he knew that Wayne Bennett was agitating for Lang to get a start in the ARL, like with the New South Wales Rugby League Club. Lang had been coaching in the BRL and... Bennett had been putting his name forward for a few different jobs. So John Lang wasn't sure if it was specifically Cronulla that, you know, Wayne helped him get, but he was certainly a big admirer. It's endlessly fascinating to me, the different coaching styles and success. You've got these uh, very rare, the John Lang, Peter Mulholland types that are actually good blokes and trade off that and get respect through that. Then you've got these like sort of faux good blokes, you know, like a Ricky Stewart type, you know, (laughs) then you've got these walk type blokes. So all different ways to approach it, but yeah, they're quite rare, those genuinely nice guys in coaching success. Yeah. And someone who, in some respect, cuts across all of those categories was Bozo. And John Lang credits Bozo to a large extent for him getting an opportunity to coach the Sharks because Lang had played most of his career in Brisbane, was brought down to East in 1980 when Bozo was coaching. And in Lang's opinion, having that Sydney presence gave him the credibility that he needed to later advance. And just by playing in that team and watching Bozo coach, Lang was you know, full of admiration and uh, said that he adopted a lot of Bozo's methods in getting his coaching career going. He must have been something else, Bozo, because everybody under him has either gone on to better things or just has the utmost respect for him. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Anyone who's played with him or been coached by him, you rarely hear anyone say anything bad about him, do you? On the field. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, But anyway, so Lang actually turned down the Cowboys gig when that was first up for grabs in 95. So, Astute. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and a Cronulla board member, he was offered more to coach the Cowboys than he was at the Sharks, and a Cronulla board member said, you know, why are you turning the Cowboys down to come here? And Dane Sorensen again cut into the interview and said he wants a shot at the title, and John Lang said that's exactly right, and that's what he was there for. I don't know why they don't why coaches don't take squads more seriously when they take these positions. Like, mm. I'd never take a basket case. I'd rather be like an assistant for 10 more years and take a yeah, basket yeah, case because yeah. your career's over. Oh, exactly. And if you're thinking about money, you've got to play the long game. You know, Do you want two years of better pay and then you know come last, be out of the league and have your coaching stock through the floor? Or do yeah. you want to be coaching in 20 years and make a career of it? take this job and be looking at um, flats in Wakefield Trinity. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So Lang came in with a pretty decent squad, a lot of good names on the rise. He made the very wise decision to bring down with him from Queensland, Paul Green. And I think Paul Green's arrival is the catalyst for all of this in many ways. Like a really, I think an underrated halfback. And we've talked about it before, but the combination between him and Mitch Healy one of my favourite half combos of the 90s. Well, you can't win a comp without a legitimate half. In those days, it had to be a seven, but now it could be a six or a seven. But someone, a controlling maestro half, and that's what they got with Green. Yeah. Legit. And I didn't remember this, but Mitch Healy was actually entrenched as the Sharks halfback and moved to 5'8 to accommodate Green. But to me, it was just such a, a natural fit of Healy at six, Green at seven. I didn't realise that. 
I think Healy was one of those guys that could do a first and, and you know be effective mm. in both. But to me, it was a natural five eight. Yeah, yeah, agreed. But getting that in place made a big difference. They also had Dean Treister at hooker, who was a you know fairly decent player, as well as Adam Dykes, who was coming through the ranks. A lot of hype from him in 1997. Maybe he never lived up to the hype that he had coming through, but I think he's another underrated player who did really well at the Sharks and then on with Parramatta. Like, I think he was a really, really good player. I tell you what I want to think about him. He had that time. The game sort of was slowed down when he had the ball. He had a bit Lockyer-esque in his uh, mm. elegance and his movement. His yeah, yeah. That's what I remember about him. He had this classy vibe to him. Yeah. And what he did at this stage of his career was to give Lang options. So Lang saw Healy Green... Dykes and Treister as a group. And so he would, you know, work his bench rotations and get that going and it paid dividends. Just just a little aside on Dean Treister. He was actually a former champion trampolinist and a self-taught juggler who, you know, used the flaming pins big in the juggling world. Is that one step away from riding a unicycle? Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if he kept it up after his playing days, but I'm I'm just so glad that Dean Treister's career played out in the 90s, where that could just be a fun little aside. If it happened today, it would be Damien Cook beat sprinting level every single game he played, <laughs> referencing the juggling. <laughs> um, here's your definition of what they termed a handy player. Yeah. Handy. Yeah. Uh, and he thought the juggling helped. It said, it helps my football because it makes me more sure of myself with the ball in my hands. It's good for catching skills it? too. Yeah, I mean, not something I'd be um, pushing to take up myself, but I can see the benefits. Trampolining impresses me, all that gymnast stuff. They, they yeah. got the strength of those blokes. Yeah, yeah. So they had their halves in place. They had a great leader in ET who led from the front. Uh, I, I love Matt Rogers' comment on ET. ET wouldn't stand for anything less than perfection on the football field. He commanded so much respect that you just didn't want to let him down. And if you stuffed up, he let you know it. But that was a good thing because you always knew where you stood with him. ET, man, what can you say about him? Our ill-fated Hall of Fame conversations and everything. The guy's just a, he's a stud player, stud bloke. I always loved him. Yeah, and I think still to this day, he gets painted with the pretty boy brush a bit. But what really stands out to me was his defense, like how good... Those driving tackles. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how good a defensive center he was, but the fact that you could play him anywhere from one to five, and especially within that Cronulla team, how much he meant to that group and what a leader he was within the team. Let me ask you a question. When you think of ET, what position do you think of him as? I, I It's hard. I, I guess I see him like more as a center. So that's, I see him as a wing. Yeah, well, I think because like, that's typically where he'd play in you know New South Wales or Australia. Yeah. That was his general spot, but I think... Center is his best position. I've just got these memories of him in the five jersey for Australia, picking up yeah. guys yeah. and then running back from the 10 meters and dumping them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he used to pick them up in the air <laughs> and uh, yeah, just run with them. Yeah, but great player and great leader. And one of a core of veterans within that Sharks team, that just gave them that grit and just some of that steely old school resolve. So you had E.T., you had Danny Lee, you had Les Davidson, like just a, an awesome core of veterans right there. It's another one of our tropes to mention this, but how the hell was Les Davidson still playing in Super League? It's unbelievable. I, I can't believe, like he was 35 at the time in the Super League year and went on another year to finish at the end of 98, which... 35 was like 40 back then too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, especially playing prop. Just the look of him in the 80s, like playing for South, like the most menacing bloke you could imagine. <laughs> a literal dock worker. <laughs> he seems like the sort of guy that can recover um, an outstanding monetary value for you. <laughs> so his secret to his longevity was, in his eyes, it was the change to the 10-metre rule. He said, under the 5-metre rule, you got bashed. The rule changes have helped blokes like me and Oxy, it was Danny Lee, survive. That's another thing. You need the halfback to win the comp. You need a hard-headed forwards to win the comp. Yeah, yeah. And as we'll see, they had a mix of youth and experience in the forwards that made it the complete package. So you had Lee, who actually like made his representative debut with New South Wales in the Tri-Series. So good reward for a player who'd played nearly 200 games and was 
winding down his career. It's a nice little reward for him. Then you had the blokes coming through like Sean Ryan, Craig Greenhill, Jason Stevens, Martin Lang. To where Nickel's there as well. What about Nickel? Anytime I, I look at names in that Sharks team, I'm like, oh, that's right. Sean Ryan was there. Oh, Martin Lang. Oh, to where Nickel was. Craig Greenhill, how did they fit them all in? So it was like a fairly stacked pack. But it was the young guns, I think, that made the biggest impact and gave Sharks fans the biggest sign of hope. And this all started earlier in the 90s. They had a President's Cup team that won. Ken Arthurson called them the best President's Cup side I've ever seen. I'm just going to read out the ones that really made it. So you had David Peachy, Matt Rogers, Adam Dykes, Dean Treister, Adam Ritson, Sean Ryan and Nick Graham. You had, you know, Ben Samet played a bit of first grade, Matt Daylight, uh, Gavin Clinch, who I think was at the Dragons in 97. So there's definitely some names there. It's definitely a great side. But the way it was being talked about was this transcendent, like, oh, my God, can you believe this squad? Can you believe this crop of juniors? And I see those names. And I'm like, that's a really good team. But it doesn't necessarily stand out to me as like, oh, wow, this is like a historically great, you know, junior team. And it made me think how much of that was the Adam Ritson factor, like the hype he had and the way he was talked about as being like the next Beatson. Well, let me ask you this. He debuted at 16, didn't he? How's he playing President's Cup? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Well, I guess he was probably playing a bit of first grade that year while he was starring for the President's Cup team. Right. But to me, this team and the blooding them in first grade and getting them to this point where Super League Grand Finalists in 97... 99 were best team all year and and it couldn't work out for them to get to a grand final. But to me, this is the legacy of Artie Beetson, who maybe he wasn't a brilliant coach, but as a scout and as a developer of junior talent was one of the best. And his legacy is all over this team, into the Roosters teams of the 2000s. Like he was just so well suited to that role. Oh, is there anybody better for it? Just a knockabout that everyone wants around and exudes an aura, you know? All yeah. the juniors are going to come and talk to him at the carnival, the parents, you know, so it's like um, a perfect role. Yeah. Matt Rogers was the other player from that team who been playing first grade in 1996, but this was the big breakout year for him. So ET was on the record as saying that he's destined to be one of the greats and he's the best winger he'd played with in 15 years at the Sharks. I was on the prove it bandwagon with him. I was like, it doesn't look that good to me. And then it just yeah. turned out to be a gun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's just a shame that his prime was spent on the bench for the Wallabies. Catching cold, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was a disgraceful period in yeah. Australian sport. <laughs> <laughs> what about Dave Peachy, though? Like, is there anybody, in living memory, is there anybody that was like a bigger fan favorite than that guy? You say that, but... All my memories of him, and maybe it's just tied up with just like... Oh, some George fans, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, it's not even that. Honestly, so much of it comes down to what we talked about in our 96 season recap, like the carrying the ball by the point and like, <laughs> you know, like just dropping it in unforgivable circumstances. These, you put the L in laconic, the music yeah, yeah, just these showboaty plays for no effect and big mistakes at the worst possible time. To me, they really dampen my affection for Peachy in the memory. I just remember him as like, he's going to bring 5,000 more through the gates each yeah. game. Like, everybody loved him. Old ladies loved him. Kids loved him. It was just, there was a couple of years there where it was, everything was Peach. Yeah, yeah. He was an excitement machine, there's no doubt. And this was a, a massive year for him, you know, playing for New South Wales and Australia and being considered, if not the best, in the, you know, top two or three fullbacks in the game. So a huge part of the Sharks' success in 97, and he wasn't alone. So they had 11 players representing in the Super League Tri-Series, and in a smaller comp, it was, you know, all eyes were on them. Like They couldn't kind of fly under the radar. They were viewed as one of the few good teams in Super League and had to live up to it. And that's basically what they did throughout the season. So they finished second. It helped in large part by their success under lights. So they had the best record in night matches across either competition and their success rate in 1997 was 83.3, which was five wins from six games. And that had been carried through for, you know, the three or four seasons before. They won 30 of 40. And not only were they winning more, they were playing much more under lights than any other team. So in an era where Super League were thinking more about nights, 
the ARL would be getting there too. And in the NRL, it would be, you know, the focus really. The, the Sharks were a bit ahead of the curve in that. Well, I mean, back then and probably for another 15 years afterwards, um, it was a valid excuse to go, yeah, they're playing under lights, so, you know, the ball's slippery. Yeah, yeah. You could just lose games and just blame that. And everyone would go, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. I'm pretty sure in my memory, that's the first time I ever heard a ground referred to as a graveyard. It was like, you know, <laughs> Saturday night at Shark Park, you know, the graveyard. Like, it, it was yeah. just like, oh, we're going to Shark Park. We're definitely going to lose because they're playing at night. It's Saturday night at Shark Park. The sponsors of that ground have forever been uh, wasting money naming rights because yeah. everyone's <laughs> called it Shark Park forever. So they had some help with this. Like they had a keen fisherman in ET who could read wind conditions. So they would be you know, monitoring the wind and making decisions about the toss. Uh, ET had actually had a contact at the Weather Bureau who would get the inside scoop on. <laughs> So he couldn't just hold his finger up and um, <laughs> throw a bit of grass up. He had to have the the bomb. Yeah. So so had some outside help, uh, but used it to their advantage. And one of those wins under lights was against the Broncos, beating them thirty two to four at the end of June. And this was like a real statement game. It's like we're here. You know, it's not just the Broncos comp. We're right in it. One of the highlights of that year for me was Cronulla. Watching them perform it was like. To me, they are Super League that year. Heaps of Cronulla memories. Yeah, yeah. They finished the season a game clear of Canberra in second spot, but five points behind Brisbane. And to me, that seems about right for Super League that year. So let's turn to the Broncos then, who a lot of changes going on off field that I think we'll start with. Uh, firstly is the ongoing tension in Brisbane between the Broncos and basically any other body, sporting or otherwise. <laughs> so they were at odds with the QRL. Uh, and once again, the juniors being collateral damage in the war. So the Broncos had arranged a gala in Roma during the World Club Challenge to, you know, for their reserve grade side to go over, uh, have coaching clinics, play invitational matches. They'd done that in Roma previously. So that was viewed as a nice little outreach event uh, and, you know, strengthening ties with Queensland. But the QRL barred the locals from taking part <laughs> in any of the activities. How petty. Yeah. But uh, don't worry, Roma, because uh, they weren't leaving you completely out in the lurch because they uh, filled the gap with the Gold Coast Chargers. <laughs> Tremendous. <laughs> Which, like, I, you know, I hate to just bag out the Chargers, but if I was like a young footy fan in Roma thinking, like, oh, the Broncos are coming. This is going to be so great. And then, like, the Chargers turned up. <laughs> You'd be like, nice jerseys. Who designed them? <laughs> uh, there was another circumstance where junior Broncos players were dumped from the Brisbane under-16 rep team despite training with the squad for five weeks. Uh, I actually support the QRL's line on this where they said, well, they shouldn't have been picked in the first place. And that had been the case in other Queensland regions. So it's fair enough. It's just always sad when it's, you know, some 15-year-old kid who is collateral damage in this massive war going on. All they say all the time is, you know, it's not going to affect the kids. You know, so the kids, kids are out of this and then it's how vicious this war got. They're like, fuck the kids. But it wasn't just the QRL. They were also butting heads with the Lang Park Trust. Uh, so signs that the deal with ANZ Stadium wasn't going well for them and they were looking for ways to get out of it. So the Queensland government was making a big push to get the Broncos back to Suncorp Stadium. So they were making plans to convert the stadium into, I guess it's, you know, current configuration. I remember thinking at the time, well, I just leave Lang Park alone. It's a classic stadium. I mean, how, how wrong was I about yeah. it now? It's yeah. amazing. Oh, it, it's so good that they were able to turn it from this cauldron of the 80s and this, you know, kind of sacred ground for rugby league. They modernize it and turn it into the best rugby league ground in the world. Yeah. So they, <laughs> it seems odd that we're talking about rugby league people doing something right, you know. Yeah. <laughs> State government's getting involved. Coming yeah. off. So the Queensland government were into that. The Brisbane City Council were not. So Jim Sawley, who uh, you might remember as being Lord Mayor of Gooseville, according to Arco. 
It's going to be a t-shirt. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so they were actually like the, the ones invested in the ANZ Stadium thing. So the deal the Broncos had with ANZ Stadium actually came through Brisbane City Council. So they were very anti the Broncos getting out of that deal if it was Lang Park that was being redeveloped. So they were keen for a new stadium. But uh, Sawley said, that ground is already beyond its capacity and we will not support any further upgrade. So I think he was proved wrong there. But what it meant was that what was viewed as an inevitability of the Broncos being back at Suncorp, uh, maybe as soon as 1998, it actually took until 2004 until they were back there full time. Yeah, right. It was a time of change in the boardroom uh, for the Broncos with Porky Morgan resigning as chairman. He decided he was going to get back into stockbroking full time. I'm just going to read this. This was a, a really sad quote in hindsight. I'm 50 years of age and you can only take so much. I have no doubt that if I'd kept going on this way, I'd be in my grave in next to no time. It's a young man's game and that young man needs a young liver and a young heart. I don't think the Broncos need a chairman who walks up and down the sideline during a game chain smoking and then goes on like an Afghan when they lose. How do Afghans go on? <laughs> I, I, I mean, the casual racism aside, uh, it, it's, you know, just sad that, you know, Morgan makes this statement. He's aware of, you know, the damage that the game in his hard living was doing, steps away and is, you know, dead within four years. It's like 11 years older than me, do I? I'm like, mm. Jesus Christ. Yeah. It really knocks you around. But um, I told you before that my mate you know, went to uni with his daughter and he reckons he's the best bloke ever. Mm. You know, and certainly, you know, a very successful administrator at the Broncos. He was part of the Pacific Sports Entertainment conglomerate that, in addition to owning the Broncos, also owned the Brisbane Bullets, the Brisbane Bandits baseball team, and a sports management company, International Quarterback. They actually pulled the pin on the bandits uh, in 1997. So I think it was a clear sign that, you know, between Morgan withdrawing and Pacific Sports Entertainment stepping back from their big plan to basically own all of Brisbane's sporting entertainment, it showed that it was never really about strength of numbers in owning these Brisbane sporting franchises. It was basically you had the Broncos as a money printing machine along with a bunch of vanity projects. That's a bit cruel to Leroy Loggins, mate, please. That <laughs> was draining threes in that era. <laughs> so on field as well, it was a time of big change for the Broncos, a changing of the guard. So 1996 was the third year in succession of underwhelming performance. They lost four out of five semis in that time. And it was they were kind of running it back every year with the same or a very similar squad, you know, with a few great names coming through. But every year it was the same results and the, you know, heyday of only a few years before in 92 and 93 seemed like, you know, a world away. You can't win every year though. You can't win every year. But when you're the Broncos and you're three straight years of underwhelming semi-final performances, it's clear that the time has come to make a change. And Wayne Bennett at the end of 1996 had one of his coaching staff come up to him to talk about what needed to happen. Uh, in Bennett's words, he came up to him and said, you've stuck with some of these guys for too long. You need to make some really hard decisions. And Bennett went on to say, deep in my heart, I knew he was right and that I'd been trying to ignore and avoid it. It's not my nature to be ruthless. It's not who I am. I became defensive in that conversation because I knew he didn't have to make the decisions and because he was telling me what I already knew. Still, I had to hear it. So the first of those players to make way was Willie Kahn, who was dumped by the Broncos spurred the offer of Adelaide and went to Rugby Union. And uh, Spiro's Avos again, just going to read a quote from him. The conversion of Willie Kahn from a Brisbane Bronco to a Queensland Red is a historic rugby event. It closes the sometimes vicious circle of defections from Union to League that began nine years ago when Daly Messenger accepted an offer to play three matches for an Australian team of Union defectors. So Spiro, once again, using the opportunity to predict the demise of rugby league didn't quite <laughs> turn out to be that much of a watershed signing <laughs> well he's the ultimate off a cliff guy isn't he Khan? yeah totally best winger best winger in the world to forgotten man yeah so he goes to the queensland reds finally viewed that a wallabies jersey was just waiting for him never happened couldn't really crack a regular spot in the reds lineup retired from all forms of the game later that year uh 
so, you know, not the greatest end to Willie Kahn's footballing career, but I love things that are true between codes. This was Willie Kahn's view on how he was finding playing with the Reds. I was made to feel very welcome. So the boys are making him feel welcome in the dressing room, which is, is good to see that is a universal thing. <laughs> Michael Hancock was a, a player who was widely viewed to be part of the cull. And, you know, you saw Kerrod Walters go, Alan Can, Chris Johns had retired. It was viewed that some of these veterans had outlived their usefulness and would be making way. And Michael Hancock was near the top of that list. At the end of 1996, he basically said to Bennett, I'm not going. Bennett said, you're not guaranteed a first grade spot. And Hancock said, that's fine. All I ask is for a fair go. Just give me the same chance as any other player and I'll fight for my spot. I really love that story. I hated him as a player, as a kid watching him, kicking in tackles and that greasy hair and everything. Now he's retired. I really, really respect him as a player. Yeah, totally. I feel the exact same way. And the fact that even at the end of 1997, it was the same story. So he was on the bench for their grand final in 97. He was talked about as a potential Melbourne signing and once again, not getting any promises from Bennett. But he stays. He's there again in 98. Five grand finals for the Broncos when before the third of them, he was viewed as being a cast-off. And you can tell that Wayne Bennett would just love the hell out of that attitude and that type of player who would stay and fight. Yeah. We paid off for him because he got two comps out yeah. didn't he? Yeah, he yeah, off. exactly. Uh what surprised me was the fact that Kevin Walters was widely viewed as leaving with Carrot and was talked about as being part of that necessary clean-out. He'd actually asked for a release to join Steve at the Cowboys, but in the end decided to stay. And kind of similar to Mick Hancock, Anthony Mundine was coming up, Lockyer was coming through. So there was a fight on his hands for his jersey, and Kevin stays. And I think, like, really hit his top form in this era. Yeah. That's a James Hooper sliding doors moment because um, his legacy was uh, set into granite with those uh, later years. Yeah. If he'd gone to the Cowboys and, and not performed, yeah. they would have said, oh, he's, he's only good with the Broncos, you know, would have killed his legacy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I really think the mundane thing actually helped him. For someone who's as laconic as Kevin Walters is, uh, and I'm sure he was a you know, very competitive player and had that makeup, but for someone who... Seems like just a kind of fun, easygoing presence to like get the rocket up him of a player coming to compete for his spot. I think that would have made him focus and really work on 1997, proving he was the man. Yeah. Uh, And so I pun intended in calling Kevin Walters the man because it was a different man that arrived in 1997 at the Broncos, Anthony Mundine. So he joined the Broncos because he saw it as his best pathway to rep footy he didn't really care who that was for like once he got there he even investigated whether he could represent queensland in the super league tri-series everything he did in that era was just off (laughs) we've got everything we've got a whole section on everything being off in this era so (laughs) let's get into it i can understand him you know thinking that the broncos was his best path to a rep jersey fine you know that's on-field stuff But this kind of thing, talking about his profile, that's why I'm here. I was prepared for it. I knew Brisbane players got a lot of publicity and the public gets right behind them. That's what I wanted. I want to get better known. Just everything about him is just so painfully forced. All he had to do was be the son of an Australian sporting legend with incredible uh, natural gifts and just play hard and be a good bloke and the whole country would have loved him. Yeah. And I mean, if you're going to talk yourself up, just... Do it after the fact, you know, like actually achieve half of what you want to set out to do. I think he was just in a hurry. He needed someone to sit down with him and show him what a career progression could look like and, you know, goals along the way. But Mundine seemed to want everything all at once. We've worn this trope out too. It's the fake Muhammad Ali yeah. stuff. You can't copy someone else. It's so inauthentic and everyone felt it. It was just it was icky. Yeah. I'm the man, blah, blah, blah. It was like a wrestling promo. It's like it wasn't real. And so he was already thinking beyond football in 1997. He was very bullish on the chances of his rap outfit, Black Venom. Uh, And, you know, no surprises this came from Super League, the magazine. But it wasn't just Super League, the magazine, who gave credulity to Mundine's rapping. 
So Mike Coleman in Super League, the magazine said, oh yeah, we didn't mention that. Music, he's a natural at that too. <laughs> I really hate when um, people try and multitask in, in those sort of things, like Donald Glover with the Childish Gambino. It's the most watered down, yeah. weak, inauthentic <laughs> music, right? And then it gets over with like pop fans yeah. for two months and then it's forgotten about like, <laughs> yeah, this it's another icky part of it. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, Super League magazine were lapping it up. The Super League administration and Broncos administration were also, I think, mainly humouring him. But Mundine had his sights set on playing uh, as the pre-match entertainment at Super League games. One of the other things that attracted <laughs> him to Brisbane was their relationship with Sony Music Australia. Broncos CEO Shane Edwards said, Yes, we discussed the matter, and we've provided Anthony with the direction and outlet for him to pursue his interest in music. Uh, and they actually took that to Sony Music, whose Queensland manager Mick Delante said, The kid has a high profile, looks good, and is very marketable. But if he can't sing, we don't see much future in investing in him. But he's good, very good. And I'm confident his <laughs> debut single will do very, very well. Yeah, he starts it on the Arias. So that debut single was Bronco Fever. <laughs> it's so corny, right? Like, Jesus Christ. So that was released in line with the Super League Grand Final to give it a bit of hype and a bit of momentum and was actually the third Bronco-based song to try to make a run at the charts. So the first was in 1989. A band called themselves On The Ball had a song, uh, Let's Go Broncos. That didn't do much at all. But then three years later, uh, a little act called Ipswich Connection had Hey, Hey, We're the Broncos. Listen, <laughs> George can't play. Is that, a, um, <laughs> is that a bonus track or what? Is that an official release? So this was Alfie's uh, comment on Mundine's musical endeavours. Just some advice to Young Chock, the pop star in the making. Back in 1992, a group called the Ipswich Connection released a song which reached number one in Queensland and number 28 nationally. There's a certain benchmark for him to reach. <laughs> Legend. So you can see there a, a little dig at Mundine in our statement, and that's not the only one a Bronco would issue that season, which we'll get to. But, you know, you talk about Mundine's lack of originality. Bronco Fever wasn't even the first Bronco-based rap song. So the B-side of Hey, Hey, We're the Broncos is, I uh, can't remember what it was called, Bronco Rap. But anyway, it was a rap song from the Ipswich Connection featuring uh, Kevin, Kerrod and Alfie all spitting rhymes. If that's not of its era, I don't know what it is. That's hilarious. Yeah, like so. it literally features the line, my name is Kerrod and I'm, and I'm here to say. <laughs> They're really funny, though. The Wolfers. <laughs> I love them. Uh, yeah, so both the A-side, Hey, Hey, We're the Broncos, and the Bronco Rap B-side are available on YouTube. Check out the rap song in particular. It's uh... <laughs> <laughs> One thing about Mundine at that, that era, and it was, it was a Quake Cooper the League-style story, was him. Uh, he's good enough to play for the Kings. You know, I used to love that, so lap that up. Oh, he was such a good athlete, and he could just you know, change it to Kings whenever he wanted. Yeah, and Gordon Tallis said that in 97. He said, oh, there's basketball. He's good enough to get a start for the Brisbane Bullets. And it's like, I don't deny that he wasn't a very good basketball player, but just the arrogance to think you can just, oh, yeah, I'm, I, I can drop a three or two. So, yeah, I'll, I'll just play for the Bullets. I reckon if he'd gone that route, route he could have been like Paddy Mills level. I like, definitely that, think if awesome. he started early and made basketball his sport. Like, he's just such a naturally gifted athlete that I'm sure he could have made it. But to be, you know, in your early 20s and playing professional rugby league, to think that you can just, like, switch at a drop of a hat. Uh, and just to conclude the music part of the segment, just in case you were wondering how Bronco Fever did. So Sony were bullish on it. They said, to be commercially viable, we'll need to sell about 5,000 copies of the single. But I'd be very disappointed if we didn't do more. We've already fielded sales inquiries and the radio stations and dance clubs in Brisbane are getting right behind the idea. Uh, so in the end, it spent one week on the charts at number 99 and then dropped out of the charts completely. And I think that chart success was driven entirely by the Queensland market. So the week it was 99 in Australia, it was 32 on the Queensland chart. But it Did you just say chart success? Yeah. <laughs> 99 yeah. in the ARIA charts? Yeah. So... <laughs> 
So it didn't make a chart in any other state. So I think every copy must have been sold in Queensland and it fell off that chart after one week as well. I reckon it would have crushed him too. Yeah, yeah. He probably thought he was going to be the giant star out of it. Yeah. I mean, he did play it live at the Broncos presentation night, but that was about the last we heard of it. You should have um, bailed out Rusty and given him a copy. (laughs) So 97 was also the start of talk about him going to boxing. There was, you know, in the press that he was looking at Sydney Olympics in 2000. That, you know, in the end, he was ruled out on a technicality because uh, he had one fight as a professional in 1995. It was an exhibition bout, but ruled as a professional fight. And also the fact that he was a paid athlete meant that he wasn't allowed to compete in amateur boxing. You can't deny it was the right choice for him. Like he had that long career in boxing, made a lot of money and you know, big name and everything. But I just really hate the disrespect of rugby league for these multi-sport guys, even union defectors. It just, it really makes me sick when they just waste this yeah, career. Yeah. And, and the thing about it is I don't think he was as good a boxer as he was a rugby league player. I mean, he made a bunch more money than he would have had. His profile is much bigger than it would have been. But I think, like, we miss out on a legacy of a potentially great rugby league player. But really, the boxing, the rapping, the playing for the bullets, that's, like, really the least of it. Because 97 was the year that Anthony Mundine said this. Laurie Daly is running on old legs. I'm fresh. I've got young legs. It's time for the new generation, brother. It's time for us to have a go. I want to be up against Laurie Daly as soon as possible. I played against him twice, and I reckon I've done well against him both times. I can more than match him. I know that for sure. <laughs> it's actually quite innocuous, really, the comment that's lasted two and a half decades. <laughs> See, that's why I wanted to read the quote in full, firstly. But, you know, go on, complete your thought there. Well, it's just, I mean, it's the first thing anyone thinks yeah. about when you think about rugby league and mundane, right? Yeah. And it's probably one of the 10 obnoxious things he said that hour. Yeah. <laughs> in that, in that era, you know what I mean? And it actually didn't come from nowhere. So apparently in the Anzac Day Super League test, the you know players were talking to each other and Laurie Daly said something about mundane that he thought he had some defensive deficiencies and that got back to mundane and that seemed to light the fuse. Mundane says that. Daly didn't respond to it well. Uh, Glenn Lazarus says, I know for a fact Laurie was really dirty on the old legs quote. He mentioned it quite a few times during the tri-series camps, and I can imagine just how much he's really looking forward to this game. Everyone's entitled to their opinion, but I don't think Anthony's done any of the Broncos any favours by stirring up Loza. Talk about poking the veritable bear. (laughs) Yeah. I think Laurie Daly discussed it privately, would have been fuming, but publicly kind of let it all play out on the field. So in 1998, he made a little a little dig, but I guess it's about as brash as Laurie Daly gets. He says, I rate him very highly. He has the potential to be a great player. And then was asked, it's only potential. And he said, yeah, I mean, you look at Tubes and Alfie. They've been at the top for nine or 10 years. He's not in that category. That's just a statement of fact. And I think with that Daly quote, you can sub out Tooves and Alfie for Laurie Daly. Like, I don't think he's the type of person that would come out and say, I've been at the top for nine or 10 years. He's not in that category. But that was the absolute truth of it. Like, Mundine hadn't done it. Laurie Daly had and was still doing it. Well, the awful thing is he come up small in the big moments for various reasons, you know, the grand final or whatever. So Laurie Daly was the opposite of that, the ultimate clutch guy. So. Mm. The wrong guy to <laughs> to try and take down. Yeah. And despite the blowback that he got from the old legs comment, he doubled down at the end of the year saying, I'm just saying what I feel, brother. I guess rugby league isn't used to that. Players don't speak out all that much. And now I am. People don't know how to handle it. But when I said I'm the game's best 5'8", that's exactly what I believe, that I'm the world's best 5'8". It's almost like he's trying to will it to be true just by saying it enough. I've always hated the fake it till you make it stuff. And that's what it is to me. It was ahead of his time on the brash thing um, in Australia, but it was like played out in American sports. Like yeah. It was already hacked by then. <laughs> yeah, and we'd already seen it here. It's not like it was new to anyone in Australia. We could just see the, the phoniness behind it. But I think part of this made it an un- uneasy fit for Mundine in Brisbane. So for the start, it was where to play him on field. He had a confrontation with Wayne Bennett early in the year because he wanted to be playing 5-8, but he was stuck in the centres. He then got injured and missed 10 games, came back, spent time at lock, and by the end of the year, it was clear that Walters had won the battle. So Mundine went up to play 
as Broncos 5-8 and didn't achieve it. Walters managed to retain his spot. It's crazy that he was at lock at that size. I think it was more just filling in for periods at a match rather than being like named. At right, lock. I don't remember that, yeah. But I yeah. mean, um, he would have been the best ever super sub. Yeah, yeah. But I think also Wayne Bennett realised that he to get the most out of him, he needed his hands on the ball. So it became a bit of a rotation. So Kevin was actually towards the back end of the season playing uh, quite a bit at hooker. So John Driscoll got injured. Kevin Walters was seen as a good replacement there. That way you could inject Mundine. And so I think there were ways that it could have worked long term. And then maybe in a couple of years, if he'd stayed, he would have taken over from Kevin. But as it turns out, he you know ruffled some feathers in Brisbane, starting with Kevin Walters. So one story says that they were behind the post after the opposition had scored and Kevin Walters had said to Mundine, rack off back out to the centres, which great use of rack off. <laughs> hearing it non-ironically is great. I hate hearing it ironically. <laughs> and Alfie thought that Mundine may have uh, struggled with some elements of the Broncos culture. He said, it said the most difficult thing joining the Broncos is getting used to our style of play. I reckon getting used to the Broncos' sense of humour is tougher. New boys always cop it, and Shock was no exception. His love of rap music made him a pretty big target, especially by Kevy Walters. Uh, I just That era for rugby league humour would have been the best. Yeah. <laughs> so Gordon Tallis had some same troubles with it. So Alfie said that he struggled to catch up with it as well. He said, Gordy's taken a little longer to come to grips with the Broncos' style of humour, or the G-up mentality, as we call it. <laughs> They were self-aware of the G-up even back then. <laughs> and all throughout the year with Mundine, there were just a few digs going on. So he didn't play in the World Club Challenge final, and an unnamed Bronco said, we did well to win considering we didn't have the world's greatest 5-8. <laughs> oh, Jesus. And he confirmed it after he left. Mundine said that, I knew I had enemies among the players. I don't want to name names. They didn't like me because I'm confident and brash and I speak my mind. What I think he missed is when you think of like a player like Wendell Saylor, who was confident and brash and outspoken and in many ways had a similar vibe to Mundine, but had some humor about it. Well, it's it's almost like he wanted to be disliked so yeah. he could get his hackles up or something. Yeah. So anyway, he spent much of the year denying rumors that he was unhappy at the Broncos and denying them in the most mundane way possible, saying things like, I know these rumors will keep going until the end of the year. The rumours come every week because St. George is struggling at the moment. I was their shining light, and they'd love to have me back there. <laughs> now, I mean, you saw a lot of him as a Saints fan. My memories of him as a player were so exciting and, um, you know, game-breaking and can break the line and the stepping and everything and just the uh, agility. What do you remember him as a player? Yeah, like all of that. He was just brilliant. And I think it says something about him that... Despite all the carry-on, despite all the bullshit you got with him, despite him leaving to go to the Broncos after 96, I, like every, you know, I'm sure there were dissenters, but I think the consensus among Dragons fans was, let's get him back. We need him back. Let's get him. You know, Brian Johnson, the CEO of the Dragons said, our board has encouraged me to pursue him. The club has set aside money to sign Mundine and the club will set aside other negotiations to concentrate on him. That's how much importance we place on securing him for next year. I think that was the vibe at the Dragons and among the fan bases. We need Mundine to win, and he is that good. Like He was a genuinely brilliant player. I really wish we got to see the career pan yeah, out. Yeah, you're telling me, mate. <laughs> um, maybe Brian Johnson had a direct line of Warner Brothers could throw that in it with a deal. <laughs> and so I think by the time of the Super League Grand Final, the rumours were getting louder and louder. Mundine was doing nothing to hose it down, the fact that he was, you know, unhappy and potentially heading back to Sydney. And it was really fortuitous for him that the court decision went against him, forcing him back to the ARL. He was kind of like, oh, well, you know, the law's the law. I can't go against it. I'm now open to all bids. And went on to plead with Super League to not contest the decision to let him go back to the ARL. <laughs> Convenient uh, set of circumstances. But is he the only one that's accepted the law and yeah. said, the judge can't tell me what to bloody do? <laughs> yeah, so he lost the court case, went back to the Dragons, and at that point, the Broncos still had three games of the World Club Challenge 
to play in the quarter, the semi-final and the final. So he played the quarterfinal and it was up in the air as to whether he was going to be allowed to play for the Broncos, given that he was now, you know, an ARL player again. The ARL actually cleared it and then Mundine pulled out anyway, said that he had a thumb injury that he might need surgery on. Shane Edwards came out and said, to my knowledge, there's no thumb injury. We're certainly disappointed, but we wish him well. The phantom thumb injury. Yeah. And so that was basically it for the mundane experience at the Broncos. A big off-field splash and, you know, played a part in a champion team. But I don't think many people think back on his Broncos experience at all. Like it's kind of been lost to time in some ways. So doing better was his former Dragons teammate Gordon Tallis, who was making his Broncos debut after sitting out 1996. In some respects, came of age as a player. He had a big game against Wigan in the World Club Challenge that really stood out, but not everyone was convinced. So uh, in a Gladys Craven column, uh, she wrote, St. George supporters are keeping a close watch on their Brisbane talent Gordon Tallis and Anthony Mundine. They note Tallis has not played a top game this year after his scintillating form in the nines which I don't remember giving Gladys Craven access to my journal, but at some stage I must have. <laughs> I like how you referred to her as she. <laughs> Respecting the uh, pseudonym. So Gordon Tallis emerging as the champion he went on to become. But who I really want to talk about in this Broncos team is John Plath. Original Mr. Fix-It. Yeah, exactly. So in 1997, he celebrated his 100th first grade game 76 of those had come off the bench. He played basically every position in the Broncos except prop. A really handy asset to have on the bench. So Wayne Bennett said, because Plathy can cover so many positions, he becomes an extremely valuable man for us now. If a player comes off because of injury, Plathy gives me valuable interchange time while we assess the injury. I can play him anywhere with confidence. And I know if I asked him, he'd play prop for the team too. Luxury for a coach. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he saw himself as a hooker as his natural position, but was happy with his role. So he said, I'm a realist. The Freddie fill-in role has been mine for five years now, and it looks like it's going to continue. <laughs> Is rugby league exclusive to put a, uh, an old man's name before <laughs> a word, like yeah. to create alliteration? It seems like it's just rugby league. <laughs> Neville Nobody, you know, that sort of thing. I like his uh, self-awareness in talking about his play. So... Of his preferred role, Hooker, he said, I rate Johnny Driscoll's play a little more conservative than mine, but his mistake rate is nil. If you rated the three Broncos hookers of the last two years on their mistake rate, Johnny would be first, I'd be second, and Kerry would come in third. This year, Wayne wanted a mistake-free hooker, and in JD, he has one. Shouldn't you want a mistake-free hooker every year? <laughs> <laughs> so I think his awareness of maybe, you know, flaws in his game and how the other players in the team were going made him suited to that role of you know, just doing whatever job was asked. And Wayne Bennett, like, clearly had great admiration for him. The rest of the team also, like, he was a popular player, genuine larrikin. If you're standing out as a larrikin in that Walters Langer <laughs> uh, era, you're doing pretty well. Yeah. Uh, in a Steve Mascod column, he wrote, Plath makes the word larrikin look banal. He's not ashamed to admit his nightclub appearances considerably outnumber his first grade starts. <laughs> Yeah, Shane Edwards saying, he enjoys life. He can see the humorous side. It's important you have a mix in the team. We have players who are the other way. They are very quiet and serious. Plathy makes sure they can see the lighter side of any situation. He tries to lead the boys astray occasionally, and if they won't go, he goes on his own. You take him out of that squad, there would have probably been a um, a lot harder to win that comp. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the fact that he you know came in as a junior in 88 and was in the team for the 92 and 93 comps. It was there in 88. As a, you know, 15, 16-year-old, I think. Like, not, wow. not a, um, yeah. yeah. So, very handy player to have. Uh, gave me my favourite image of the year, which was him on the field with a magnum of champagne and a cigarette in his mouth after the grand final win. So, enjoyed his footy. But a key part of that team who, as we said, were in a transition point, had some problems with injury throughout the year. You needed that kind of glue guy, that good dressing room presence, a lack of ego, and someone who could just do any job asked of him. That sort of quality became especially important with the injury to Glenn Lazarus midway through the year. So he got injured in July, was out for the season, and at that point there were very real concerns about the Broncos' ability to go on with it. And conversely, I think for Glenn Lazarus to 
get back at his age and his size. So David Middleton was worried about him coming back because he said that when he got injured in 91, he came back looking like a sumo wrestler. He was 25 then, and now he's 31. Lazarus comes back, and from memory, he was a bit bigger in the uh, Melbourne years, but he still came back and gave Melbourne instant credibility. There was two separate Lazarus bodies, the Canberra one with the flat top. Yep. And he looked like Dolph Lundgren, and then there was, like, giant Lazarus. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But it's really interesting. I don't think this is true of any other great of the era that, you know, 24, 25 years after he retired, there's still no one close. Oh. Webkey probably got the closest, but, you know, there's some distance between Webkey and Lazarus. What he did for that position was just incredible. How can you be that big and be that agile to play the ball like that? <laughs> and, and, you know, not that I want to derail this with a, an Immortals discussion, but I think every year, like, his case for immortality grows when you consider that, like, no one else gets near him you know, in the 25 years since. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say he wouldn't look out of place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. But, but that's all we'll say on that. But basically, Lazarus was gone midway through the year, so it was up to the rest of the pack to step up. They had a new breed coming in, which is like, it's pretty weird to think that there were doubts about Brisbane when Lazarus went down when you had a pack including... Gordon Tallis, Brad Thorne, Shane Webke, Peter Ryan, Andrew G. Peter Ryan was a hitman too, God. I love uh, Wayne Bennett's comment on Peter Ryan. I'll never forget this. We were playing the Gold Coast and our goal line dropout sailed 50 metres through the air. This guy is catching it and bang, Pete hits him. Colossal hit. Best one-on-one tackle you'd ever see. Hit him magnificently after running 40-odd metres flat out to the target. Then he jumped up, cocked his elbow and dropped it into the guy's head. That was Peter Ryan, pure adrenaline. He copped two or three weeks for that. So a violent act of thuggery looked on. I mean, that was Pete, you know. <laughs> the way they just like gloss over things like that. Yeah. Uh, but this was the year that Webkey arrived. Again, he was considered the Broncos' discovery of the year, which uh, Super League magazine said it was a close one between Shane Webkey and Tony Carroll. So fairly stacked at the Broncos in this era. Imagine like all those defenders coming at you. Carol, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Ryan, mm. Talis. Webke, like, yeah, not quite Lazarus, but amazing prop. Yeah, and again, it's probably Webke and then some distance from him to the next one. Uh, but yeah, so that was the year that he emerged and he talks about it as being like, you know, one of his favourite years and the 97 comp means more to him than... 98 and the Super League stuff kind of passed him by as a young player. It was just him worrying about his career and getting to be a top player. Uh, and he called it the year in which it all really came together for me for the first time. I remember seeing his name in the program and thinking, oh, freaking, how do you say that? Yeah. I was hating the name. <laughs> and then going from that thought to seeing what a great career he yeah. had. Uh, for Darren Lockyer, he'd probably already broken out, but this was the year that he went from you know, the exciting young player to having legitimate claims to best player in the world, made his Australian debuts, started the year maybe like behind David Peachy in terms of best fullback in Super League, but by the end of the year, it wasn't a question. Steve Renoff called him the best player in either competition. And this is what I want to say about Darren Lockyer. How much time did we spend on Anthony Mundine in this episode? I could read out like literally... 50 quotes from 1997 about people talking about how good Darren Lockyer was. But it's just not as interesting. There's only so many ways you can say one of the greatest players of all time was a really great player. But it was all on field. There was like no scandal, no outlandish behavior. You couldn't even get a quote out of him in 97. It was just... He talk a glass eye to sleep, that's for yeah. sure. But uh, I prefer to have um, a unimpeachable career like him than be funny off the field. Yeah, 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 totally. So there's not that much to say other than he was a great player who basically like stamped his passport as a great player in 1997. The guy just went from strength to strength every year. They all predicted it. Sterlo, all those guys said this guy's got it, and then he just improved every year to become <laughs> unbeatable. And really. When you put all this together, we haven't even talked about Alf, who had basically moved to a different stage of his career, but was 
just as good at that new stage and was, you know, clearly the best performing halfback in Super League, wouldn't have had many challenges in the ARL. And basically when you put all that together, it's hard to see a scenario where the Broncos didn't win in 97. Yeah, in hindsight, it was like um, how Cronulla were favourites, I don't know. Yeah. So I think by the end of the year, that had faded, and by the time it got to the finals, it was you know pretty clear that Brisbane were going to win it. Does it qualify for fate accompli? Oh, it's probably the most fate of any accompli uh, in, in this series. But the thing is that they had a lot to prove, and the Broncos players were keenly aware of their failures over the last few years. And the secret to the success, of course, came down to a very particular type of session that was held in the preseason. So Mike Coleman wrote that they had a lot of meetings behind closed doors throughout 1997, but the most important was before a football had even been kicked. It was a meeting of the players, no coaches, no officials. And it was the day they drew a line in the sand and said, it stops here. So that was honesty session number one for 1997. Honesty session number two came after that Cronulla loss where they got together. In Wendell Saylor's words, the second one was after Cronulla smashed us down at Shark Park. We were really dirty about that. We got together again and the feeling was, hey guys, come on, we can't let it happen again. It was like the semis in 1996. We got there and been knocked out. We weren't going to have a repeat. That was a turning point. After that, we won 13 games straight. Was that honesty session a players only? The preseason one was players only. I think at least uh, Wayne Bennett was there for the uh, for the Sharks one. You can't win a comp without an honesty session. That's it's, a genuine it, fact. Yeah, never been done. So there it is, basically. So the sorry for the spoiler. Anyone who was keenly <laughs> waiting for our grand final recap to know what happened. But basically, after that Sharks loss, the Broncos didn't lose another game for the year. A very, very, very good football team they had in 1997. Well, just bad luck for the Sharks that they got the grand final against, you know, super coach Bennett, who always yep. wins the grand finals generally. Yeah. And then um, all these big game players, these clutch players, and it's their first one. You've got to lose one to win one. It's yeah. just bad timing for the yep. Sharks. Absolutely. Uh, but we'll hear all about it in our uh, grand final recap, which is going to be a really fun one. I'm really looking forward to talking about that grand final and uh, all the carry on either side of it. So uh, you'll hear from us soon for that. Uh, but in the meantime, hope you've enjoyed this episode. Toodaloo.